0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here's yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests. Today, I am very excited to welcome Toby Moskovitz, CEO of Heritage Equity Partners, Phil Mara, CPA, and his colleague, Dimitri Atrakis, tax principal, both from KPMG, and we are recording May 28th, 2019 at the Manhattan Midtown East Park Avenue offices of KPMG. Fabulous for the three of you to join us today on Realty Speak, and listeners, thanks for being patient and waiting longer than usual for this new episode.
1: Great to be here, Bill. Looking forward to chatting on QOZs. Bill, thanks for having us today. It's uh, great to talk to you about Qualified Opportunity Zones.
2: Bill, happy to be here this morning and really excited to have my list of questions answered from two of the thought leaders um, in the trenches here with Opportunity Zone regulation.
0: I'd like to introduce each one of you and just talk a little bit about your background. Toby, you were the CEO of Heritage Equity Partners, which you founded during the downturn in 2008. And since then, you've played a significant role in driving the development and evolution of residential and commercial real estate in the Brooklyn, New York communities of Williamsburg, Clinton Hill and Bushwick. Two very notable projects are the Williamsburg Hotel and the 25 Kent Office Development. After completing an MBA from Bar-Alan University, you started your career in private equity and venture capital before a segue to real estate development. Currently, you serve on the National Advisory Board of Springboard Enterprises, a nonprofit supporting women's access to private equity opportunities. You serve on the Board of Directors of the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce. You are a member of the Advisory Council of St. Nick's Alliance, supporting their efforts to create job opportunities for residents of North Brooklyn, and an active member of Community Board One in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Phil, you are the National Audit Leader for the Building, Construction, and Real Estate Practice at KPMG, as well as a leader of the U.S. Real Estate Fund. You have over 29 years of sector experience and consult in pretty much every area of building, construction, and real estate. Your responsibilities have included being the market development leader for the New York Asset Management Practice, supervision of large multi-location audit engagements, review and evaluation of the management control environments of real estate companies, analysis and review of the construction and development process for office and retail projects, review and evaluation of real estate mortgage loans, performance of lease analysis, wait, I got to take a breath, analysts and review of real estate appraisals, real estate workouts, Due diligence on proposed acquisitions and preparation of cash flow projections and models. You were a sought-after source for articles on all of the above and a featured panelist at many industry conferences. Dimitri, you are an attorney and tax principal at KPMG. You advise clients including global funds, asset managers, institutional investors, REITs, which are real estate investment trusts, and owner-operators with the structuring of new funds and investments for fund formation, private equity offerings, inbound structuring, REIT issues, complex partner transactions, workouts, and mergers and acquisitions. Prior to working in public accounting, you served as an attorney advisor at the IRS Office of Chief Counsel for pass-throughs and special industries and worked on a number of guidance projects, most notably as co-author of the Equity for Services proposed regulations. You completed a master of law degree in taxation at NYU School of Law. Realty Speak fans, this is a very (laughs) distinguished group that you will have the pleasure to learn from today, and we are going to talk about Opportunity Zones, the result of the provision in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 which was the most sweeping tax legislation since the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And while the Opportunity Zones program has been around for a while, since December of 2017, it is only last month in April that the IRS and Treasury Department issued a much anticipated second round of Opportunity Zone guidance. Toby, Phil, and Dimitri, let's get started and share all we can with our listeners so that they can, as sponsors, developers... Fund managers, building and site owners begin to reap the benefits of investing with confidence in opportunity zones and qualified opportunity funds. Now, while the opportunity zones phenomena is a very hot topic, I do find that there are still many who, while they would benefit from the program, are not aware of how it works. Phil, how about a high-level description of the program, its benefits, and the spirit of the intention in these locations earmarked as opportunity zones? People do know about this, but they hear about things in small
3: bites, cocktail party talk, as well as not fully understanding the timeline and date. So I'm going to just start 50,000-foot view. We got involved with the journey about uh, two years ago when Congress had issued the law as part of the uh, Trump tax reform. in in 2017, each of the governors was asked to select 25% of their low-income census tracts to be part of the program. So each governor had the selections and various states and government uh, looked at various themes. Some wanted to drive affordable housing, others wanted to drive the development of downtowns. Others wanted to incubate um, new technologies and biotech businesses, and maybe if they had substantial uh, available space around military facilities, how to redevelop those things. Each state had a different view, but ultimately it was all about creating investment in these low-income areas and driving job growth and businesses to come to those areas. So what happened, 8,700 census tracts, we're actually certified by each uh, individual governor from the 50 states. What the program requires is capital gains to, from just about any source to be rolled over into a vehicle. For the term of art for this program, it's called a fund, but it can be one asset, one investor. It doesn't need to be a traditional fund that we typically know them as. They then have to go out and make investments in these census tracts. If you're investing in a property that exists, you're going to need to spend an additional amount of capital to substantially improve that, and that's generally equal to the amount of the building basis of the asset you just acquired. Or if you're investing in a business, to actually just put new capital into the business and grow that business within the area. There are very short timelines around this. You must, within 180 days of creation of the capital gain, invest that money into a Q fund. If you happen to get those capital gains through a partnership allocation of a K-1 or a 1099, you actually have 180 days from the end of that calendar year to make that investment. Gives them a little bit more time then that fund has 180 days to invest it in a property or business. However, there are some exceptions. Um, There are some exceptions called the working capital exception that extend that period for up to 31 months as long as you have a very detailed plan of how you're going to invest it in the zone. There are three types of benefits that you can get. First benefit is a, a time value of money benefit because that rollover capital gains will not be taxed in 2026. If you're able to get an investment into a fund and have that investment for at least five to seven years, you can get a basis step up of anywhere from the 10 to 15% of the basis of the rollover, so therefore reducing your effective tax rate. And the third and probably most important benefit is if you invest in a property or invest in a business and you keep it for at least 10 years and you ultimately sell it, you can create complete deferral of the appreciation on the rollover gain. Uh, So that is how the basics of the program work. There are lots of interesting nuances that we can talk about today, but just to make sure everybody understands this is that um, the program is designed to have capital invested between now and 2026, and you can keep it in this program, all the way to 2047. And I know that's the number one thing that people tend to not understand because there are three different kinds of benefits, there are three different trigger dates, but this program is designed to run from 2026 to 2047, which is not always one of the things that people understand.
0: So let's have a quick example of that using actual numbers. Suppose somebody had a gain either from the sale of real estate or the sale of another highly appreciated asset like a stock, and let's say it was a million dollars. So now they invest this million dollars into this qualified opportunity fund or opportunity zone business. What's happening with that million dollars in five, seven, and 10 years? So you said somebody bought some stock for $100,000, and now it's worth
3: 1.1 million. Therefore, they have a gain of a of million dollars. That million dollars is what would be the rollover gain that they have to put into the fund.
0: So they get to keep the 100,000 aside.
3: They get to keep any principal that they had originally invested. They only have to invest the gain. If they get the gain into a vehicle before the end of 2019 and they hold that for at least 7 years, which is 2026, they're going to pay tax only on 85% of that gain at the end of 2026. So in our example, $850,000 would be subject to tax at the capital gains rate in effect in 2026. They would get a 15% exemption. Now, if that investment that they put the million dollars in grows to $15 million, that $14 million gain, uh, if they hold it for at least 10 years, but no later than 2047, All of that $14 million
0: gain would be completely tax-free. Well, that sounds like a fabulous deal, and that's a great foundational understanding for us, Phil. Thank you very much. I have a bunch of other questions, but as I mentioned before, we also have with us Toby Moskovitz. And Toby, I mean, uh, have you invested yet in an opportunity zone in your development, or is there a piece of property that you're looking at? And let's get some of that free advice.
2: Absolutely. I started out as a real estate developer, playing in markets that today we would consider opportunity zones. And these are Williamsburg about a decade ago, which was an emerging neighborhood, Clinton Hill and Bushwick about five years ago, and more recently, Sunset Park. And given that I'm not active in the tax industry on a daily basis, my knowledge of the existence of opportunity zones came when I stumbled onto a new deal that I was purchasing because it was a great real estate transaction in a market known as Sunset Park. The site had been on the market for over two years. And then after I got under contract in uh, the winter of 2017, people started calling asking to buy it from me. And I asked the broker, I said, what changed? And he said, didn't you hear? This is an opportunity zone. And I said, what's that? And started exploring and getting educated. And you no, know, the, the story of this transaction, I think is an interesting one that tells you where we were and where we are in that I ultimately closed on it in July of 2018. And then even though I could have utilized op capital gains money, did not. I ended up funding it with an investor and my own capital, you know, old fashioned money. It's a, it's a great deal. There was a lot of uncertainty at that point in terms of the regulation and I think there are others in my position that had deals that were moving and ended up you know, not utilizing capital gains and the benefits of the transaction, but it led me to a place where now I have a number of sites under contract, primarily in the South Bronx and Mott Haven, which is an area we'll speak more about, and there's been a lot of activity in the New York market, and I intend to utilize capital gains in various forms You know, with the caveat that For me as a developer, this is what I do for a living and I would and will move ahead on these transactions regardless of where the the money comes from. But certainly around me, there's a lot of activity and increased activity because people are looking for um, movement into these areas. But I I do have a question for, for Phil and Dimitri and I'm curious for you to explain. I've heard a lot of different explanations, but would love to hear your view on why someone might use opportunity zone, a structure of an opportunity zone, you know, a QOF, as opposed to a traditional 1031? And is it really more about where the money's coming from, multi-asset versus real estate?
0: And can I add something to that question? Sure you know, one of the things you said, Toby, is that you bought it, you really didn't realize it was an opportunity zone. Then all of a sudden it wasn't an opportunity zone. You closed during a period of time where you could have gotten opportunity zone money. What was the original use of that property?
2: It's a gas station that had been decommissioned and we've actually subsequently completed demolition. I think had it been later in the cycle with more clarity on the regs, we would have made a greater effort to identify Opportunities on Capital. But until really a couple weeks ago, there was a lot of confusion. And we, we discussed this particular deal, Phil and I, even on the issue of what percentage ownership we could have maintained based on the fact that we closed on it before we declared it an Opportunity Zone deal. So many, many of the questions that put a cloud around my choice as to how to fund it have now been cleared up. And I believe we'll get many others like myself, either people who own properties for some time or bought in the last 20, 24 months to take advantage of the, the regulation here and the Opportunity Zone.
0: What's it going to be, this property? Is it going to be, be multifamily? It's going to be multifamily, yeah. So this is, I think, a good... Se- I mean, definitely answer Toby's question, but I think this is also a good time to ask the question, is there still an opportunity for Toby because... The use has not been put into operation yet as a multifamily. Is that right? That is correct. And so Toby's question was, why would she get Opportunity Zone money as opposed to regular money? And then also, is there still an opportunity for her in this particular transaction? And that actually came out of the most recent uh, guidance.
2: Yeah, But I would also weigh in on the, I think people really want to understand 1031 benefits versus QOZ.
0: I'll take the first
3: part of it. There, there are three things that were embedded in the new regs that can help somebody who's a pre-existing owner of the property. The first is that you are allowed to now contribute non-cash assets into a vehicle, which there was not clarity in the first regs and in the law about that if that were allowed. So you are allowed to do that. The second piece of it, as we talked about, is that if you sell an asset into a new qualified opportunity zone fund the seller can't retain more than 20% of the economics of the vehicle. And that still exists. The third piece that is unique and new that we weren't sure was going to come out is the ability to lease an asset to a vehicle. So you might be able to lease that asset and therefore the new Q fund could get some of the economics and allow you to to facilitate a structure where initially you bought the asset with non-qualifying money, you could restructure a new vehicle where it's leasing that asset, and that money to buy into that and renovate and improve that asset could come from QOZ money, and as a result, you might be able to turn an asset that previously was not a qualifying investment into a qualifying investment through that lease structure. So a land lease? A land lease, exactly.
2: I think this is a really critical point because I was not part of the process of direct feedback, certainly with Treasury, but I think there was a lot of criticism around this issue of sort of random and arbitrary elements that were encouraging people, the original owners, to sell property and sort of forcing that transfer of wealth. And that's now gone away. There's multiple ways which were not clear when we first had our discussion when I consulted with Phil and his team around my property as to how to get the benefits even if you already own a property.
3: The the government clearly was trying to get new dollars that were sitting on the sidelines in capital gains. Probably those capital gains would have stayed in your Facebook stock or your art collection or other investments for you hit the, the point in time that you're doing some estate planning. Well, this was a way for monies to come in today get back into the economy and really make a difference in the low and moderate income areas. So that that was the, the premise and the prejudice that was in the structure and as you said, You may have been an owner of properties for 15 or 20 years and really had been in the community for a long time, and all of a sudden you were not going to take the benefit. Well, there are now some ways where you can, if you do improve the property, substantially improve it, add value to it that you will be able to take those benefits, even though you were a pre-existing owner. But there is a lot of structuring to be done in order to qualify in the program. It's not as easy as if you were buying it from a third party and then being able to put it back and do the renovation.
0: And so let's say Toby's at the point where she has this completely approved, done the demolition, she's got the plans, and she decides she doesn't want to develop the property. She can sell it to someone else the way it is, and they can fund it with a qualified opportunity fund.
3: She could improve it, get the zoning in place and sell it, and then somebody else could do the substantial improvement. Or a very interesting thing. If you wanted to be a merchant builder, you could get it right to the point before it becomes operational and then sell it to somebody who will put it into operations. That asset would be considered under the rules as original use. And therefore, the buyer who basically doesn't improve it because you've done all the work can actually get the same QOZ benefits that you would have if after doing the substantial improvement, so that's a little bit of a unique structure to be able to take advantage of the definition of an original use, because it's all about whether or not the asset has become depreciable, has been begun to generate operating income, and if you do it one minute before that and sell it into the vehicle, that new vehicle can take the benefits, and we do see that that will be one of the mechanisms that will occur for people like your structure where you invested in it in. A, using non-qualified opportunity zone rollover dollars, use regular cash, that they might want to take advantage of that opportunity.
1: Anecdotally, we're seeing a lot of interest in in those pre-TCO deals, where a number of the new Q funds that I've been working on actually have been looking at properties pre-TCO, and the developers seem to like it because it pulls out leasing risk, just allows a cleaner exit and an earlier exit. Just to clarify for our listeners, you talk about TCO, that's temporary certificate of occupancy? Yeah, TCO is your temporary certificate of occupancy and that's important because original use really is linked to when an asset is a tangible property is placed into service for depreciation or amortization purposes. So is the a TCO that demarcation point? Th- that that is typically the trigger. You would want to sell it before you get to TCO? Just before TCO. So the strategy is you develop the building to 98% completion You sell the building pre-TCO to a buyer that has formed a qualified opportunity fund and wants to take advantage of the program. And that sale, once it occurs and the the buyer completes the the development and gets the TCO, that property will qualify as original use.
2: On this point, the date that somebody purchases that pre-TCO building, is that the trigger date? So if it happens in a year and a half from now, as opposed to the original development date, what is the trigger date on the original use deal?
3: From the new buyer's perspective, it's when they take title to the property. So in your case, it'll be the one and a half years later, they will take ownership of that. So they will have gotten their QOZ money into their vehicle 180 days before that. Then they can close and then take the property from a development property and put it into service under their watch. And therefore they are original use.
2: And I think this is a, a good point that both you know Dimitri and Phil raise because in a market like New York where the bulk of what's happening is ground up construction, we're looking at a very specific set of circumstances, buying the land, getting improved, getting it completed in, in 31 months. Um And I'm curious as to what you're seeing around the country and to clarify the, the original use premise on empty buildings. So someone who either as an owner, a lessor or selling a building that hasn't been in use for X number of time. What what are the dynamic there? What is the dynamic there in terms of improvement and how much money they need to put in? Take an old warehouse, and now all of a sudden we want to have it turn it into a QOZ deal.
3: The regs that came out actually were very favorable for the industry. What it said is, if you had a building that had not been in service for five or more years, there is no requirement for substantial improvement. So they're similar to the way where they would look at a piece of land. If you didn't have anything on it, there's no requirement to spend a specific amount of money. What they won't allow you to do is land bank. They would view that as um, not consistent with what the intent of the law was, which was to create jobs and create investment. So they're not going to allow you to land bank, but you are going to have to do something with that land to create a business or trade or business. The second piece of the equation, if you do buy an operating building with a piece of land... The amount of substantial improvement is limited to the fair value of the building. So I'll use another example. You buy an asset for a million dollars. The land value is 400000 The building value is 600000 You would need to spend another $600,000 on substantial improvement in order to qualify under the program.
1: The five years is interesting on the vacant buildings. Five years seems like a long time. But this is an example of the Treasury looking to guidance from the public, which was saying, listen, there's all these vacant buildings in the zones. They should qualify for original use so that people invest in them and they're no longer vacant. And Treasury was smart. They looked at it and said, if we did it for a year, smart landlords would take people out of their building for a year, wait a year, and then put it into use and improve those buildings. So they waited five years from a public policy perspective to prevent an abuse, but to work towards the policy of getting these vacant buildings built.
2: So I have a a question about the market overall, and then what both of you, Dimitri and Phil, are seeing in terms of where the capital is coming from. And you had mentioned uh, some of the regional banks uh, looking at coming in with a PREF equity structure in lieu of MES. But are there limitations in terms of the kind of entities that can participate or the kind of investors that can participate? And if you can sort of walk us through any implications, whether it be trusts or you know, C corps, S corps, etc., and then how you think that's going to play out in terms of the capital stack. Because I think this one point that you mentioned, some of the banks looking at coming in with PREF as opposed to MES is it would be a very interesting driver in new forms of capital and really shifting of the capital stack based on tax law, which is unique and interesting.
1: Well, from a rules perspective, it's very broad. Really, what you need is a taxpayer that's going to pay capital gains, to have an eligible investor, and that taxpayer can be an individual, it can be a trust, it can be a corporation, it can be a partnership, an S-corp, and each one of those can take those capital gain rollover dollars and invest in Qualified Opportunity Fund. In terms of capital stack, Phil, you're the one that was talking about the-
3: Sure. Your typical capital is going to come from one of the sources, family office, high net worth individuals. But we also are seeing interest from corporations, including banks, who have capital gains that they can roll over from a source. We've talked to a number of insurance companies that like this, and they'd be interested in some higher yielding products. They'd be interested in taking um, something after the senior loan, but before the common equity, so call it in the middle mezz, structuring it like preferred equity so they can get the three benefits that we talked about, the time value of money, the deferral of up to 15%, and then any appreciation on the investment, they can also avoid paying tax on that. And they can structure it to look a little bit like a coupon payment. If they're going to get 7 or 8% coupon on the uh, preferred equity plus those other benefits, it looks like a very nice
0: return for something that might be um, you know, moderate risk. Talk a little bit about the difference between preferred equity and non-preferred equity. Preferred equity is a term of
3: art that I would say is somewhere between the capital stack of your typical investor. So uh, we're often seeing the typical investor for this type of vehicle is a family officer, high net worth individual that is providing the equity and wants all the benefits that we've mentioned earlier. And then there are others that are willing to sit a little bit higher in the capital stack, but potentially reduce the level of their return based upon that preferred rate of return that they're going to get, and some upside benefits. Uh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about preferred equity.
0: Oh, great. Want to go back to
3: the like-kind exchange?
2: Yeah, I was going to ask that. So I was I could ask it again. So you know, I think there's a lot of confusion in the market as to why someone like myself, a developer owner, might utilize a 1031 exchange versus using the QOF. It's clear with regard to non-real estate capital, but on a real estate transaction, can you walk us through some of the benefits to an an owner or someone selling a property as to why they might use QOF versus typical 1031?
3: The first and probably most important one is that with a like-kind exchange, you have to roll over both the original principle of your investment and the capital gain with a QOZ structure, you get to retain the original capital. You don't have to reinvest it. I think that is a very significant difference between the two. The second piece of this is the flexibility and ease of doing a QOZ fund versus doing a like-kind exchange. It's a like-kind exchange. You have to identify a very specific property. Often you're using a qualified intermediary as a third party to help facilitate the transaction. And you've gotta then find a buyer If you don't use the qualified intermediary, that's willing to transact with you and trade properties. I think those are the reasons why people might consider doing it. The other big difference between a QOZ fund and a like-kind exchange, with a QOZ, there is going to be a payment of tax in 2026 on the capital gain, where with a like-kind exchange, since you're rolling over both the principal and the capital gain, you are deferring all of the tax until the future.
1: And I would say the other issue is like-kind exchange in the name, you need to buy like-kind property. Whereas if you're selling a building and you want to invest in a qualified opportunity fund, you may want to invest in real estate, but you may want to invest in an operating business. And the QOZ program allows you to do that as long as it's in the zone.
3: I also believe what you started with is the caveat is that where the capital is coming from. With a like-kind exchange, it typically has to come from real estate. Here, you could sell art, you can sell your Facebook stock, you can sell just about anything that creates a capital gain and roll it over into a Q fund. That's also another major advantage that we're going to see a lot of people take advantage of when they understand how the program works.
1: One of the things that we are talking about though is combining the two programs, like-kind exchange and QF. The idea being, if you invested in a piece of property in a qualified opportunity fund, and let's say in year three or year four, you decide you want to exit. Under the new rules, you can churn assets within a qualified opportunity fund and invest in another property. And under those rules, though, you have to pick up the tax on that first sale. So one of the things we talk about is, hey, in year three or year four, if you, if the fund wants to sell the real estate, why not enter into a like-kind exchange, roll over your basis and wait the 10 years. And that way you're churning the assets, you're investing in something new, You're still going to get the 10-year upside on the back end.
2: So just to clarify, so if one did a 1031 three, four years out, it would still be governed by the rules of the Opportunity Zone on any exit? It would. It would be.
1: It would. It's a way to combine the two programs. I'm keeping
2: tabs of I've learned about three, four things already. Guys are doing well. I was not aware of that. Yeah. You know, I was also going to ask about the, the impact of death or an estate, how that might play out whether there's more flexibility in the 1031 versus using the Opportunity Zone.
1: Under the Qualified Opportunity Zone program, we have certain inclusion events. And death and moving assets through an estate is not an inclusion event, which means that you can pass on your Qualified Opportunity Fund interest after death through your estate. I have one question going back to Toby to your
0: original example of your property that it was a gas station and you're developing. So let's say Toby brought that to just before TCO and she sold it to an owner-operator who's not a developer, right? And now she's going to have a capital gain. Can she take that capital
1: gain and invest it in the Qualified Opportunity Fund of the new owner? She can, with the caveat that she can't hold more than 20% of the economics in the new Qualified Opportunity Fund. She may not be able to invest all of the gain, but she can invest part of the gain. True, and if she if if she's if investing all of the gain would put her over the 20%, it doesn't mean she needs to pick up the full amount of the gain because she could always take – a portion of that and go into another fund that qualifies for QZ benefits. So you can bifurcate your capital gain.
0: You don't have to put it all on the one fund. Correct.
1: And she gets to keep the original capital, the basis. And she gets to keep the basis. To
0: invest in something else. Or pay her tax in 2026. Right. You know, one of the
3: things that we jumped around on how you can apply the like kind exchange structure. The reason that's important is that under the new regs, we can now really do multi-asset deals that'll allow you to go out and sell a property, still the typical partnership and profit and loss allocation rules apply. So if during a 10-year period of the QOZ, you sell an asset and want to recycle that capital into another asset, you can do that. But you do have capital gains flowing up to the investors and therefore they will pay tax on the, the interim capital gain that, on the sale of the asset. However, if that sale, you then consummate a like-kind exchange typical partnership ruling counts. So you won't pay tax on that recycling of that asset because you do a uh, 1031 exchange for that deal. And I think that's how you could marry uh, the concepts to really make these multi-asset longer life vehicles work in this structure.
2: I think the the one issue that that introduces is we we had discussed earlier is what are the mechanisms or the call it triggers for liquidity that people are going to be able to use or rely on when the taxes come due in seven years. And that introduces a whole additional set of issues simply because a 1031 is rolling the original principle.
1: We got a very good answer there though, because one of the questions before the new set of regs was typically in real estate deals, the partnership will refinance once you stabilize the property and push out the cash in a debt finance distribution. Before we got the proposed regs, it was unclear whether that distribution was an inclusion event that would force the pickup of your 2026 deferred gain. Now, under the new proposed regs, we now know that as long as you have basis, you can take a distribution even if debt financed. And because in partnerships we get basis for allocations of debt, that's a very liberal rule that should allow refinancings to help pay the tax in 2026.
3: term of art here is you want to avoid what is deemed to be a disguise sale. If you did a transaction immediately and refinanced out your capital, that might be viewed as a disguise sale. Generally speaking, if, if it's two years past the original transaction, you'll usually not be deemed to be a disguise sale. And also, if we do have the appreciation that we hope will happen between the time we enter into it, and 2026, that'll again support the fact that this isn't a disguise sale because there has been appreciation of the underlying QOZ asset.
2: I've seen a lot of questions, chatter on social media and people asking why there haven't been more deals done yet or in and around opportunity zones. I'm curious as to your thoughts and what you're seeing from your client base.
3: I think you said it earlier that there were a lot of rules that still weren't in the process. We just got The most current regs it i think slowed down the volume of transactions you did your deal initially irrespective that it was in a qualified opportunity zone because it was a great deal i still believe that qoz deals need to be good real estate deals and these tax incentives might accelerate the number of transactions and how quickly they're done but if it's not a good deal um, you shouldn't do a qoz transaction
1: we've seen the pace of deals pick up in the beginning when the rules were very unclear, we only really saw club deals getting done. Somebody sold the property, they had the capital gain, they might not have known what all the rules were, but said, you know what, it's worth the risk, I'm I'm going to invest in this qualified opportunity zone property anyway, let me try to qualify for the program. So we saw basically club deals where people could negotiate easily amongst the different parties and try to fit into the rules. Now with the second set of proposed regs, we're definitely seeing more of the big players, the private equity funds, The institutional investors that really need clarity and rules to act, we're seeing them now come off the fence.
2: So there's a lot that has to happen in the next eight months to get the, actually it's even less than that, it's six months, but eight months from when the second set of regs were issued to give one the benefit of that higher increase in basis and sort of tax reduction. Do you think that Treasury and the various parties that be are thinking about extending that initial window? Because I don't think anyone contemplated getting clarity so late in the cycle in 2019?
3: I think that there is some sentiment you hear in social media, in, in individual conversations. In order to be able to change the deadlines that are out there, they need a the law to be changed, which now requires Congress to agree. And you've got to get the president to sign it, which has been complicated. Should it be a bipartisan issue? Yes. Improving and, and investing in low and moderate income areas should be a bipartisan issue. I'm just not sure it'll happen. But let's be clear, you're talking about maximizing the benefits. Exactly. Right? You in order to get the the 15% step up you must invest the gain before the end of 2019 to invest those capital gains and check the box in order to qualify as a as a qualified opportunity fund investment in 2019. Then if you don't do that, you can get the 10% step up in basis all the way through 2021's tax year. It's not like it all goes away. You just start losing pieces of it. In my personal opinion, although there are some great benefits for the time value of money and the deferral, the appreciation benefit is really what people should be focusing on because that can give you an unlimited amount of tax-exempt gain. And that might be the majority of the type of gains that we might see if investment in both real estate and businesses over the long haul generate
0: the returns that hopefully uh, we see this program create. What's the equity multiple on some representative transactions, not necessarily ones that are happening in opportunity zones, but let's go back the last 12 to 18 months and talk about maybe three or four that really perform well, what the equity multiple was. Was it three? Was it five? I'm not sure equity multiple is the way a real estate person looks at it. It's, they look at what their cap rate might be on the
3: assets. Typical assets in low and moderate income areas tend to have between 8 and 11% cap rate. Um, most real estate deals are looked at on an IRR basis, or as you say, sometimes an equity multiple basis, but the uniqueness of this structure requires you to look at after-tax returns. We think that the after-tax benefits could improve your return by 300 to 500 basis, Obviously, though, that's very wide ranges and all depends on the time horizon, how quickly you do refinancings, what the market looks like in these individual markets. But we do think it's significant. But you really have to evaluate on an after-tax basis, which is not common for real estate investors.
2: I think an added point to Phil's comment is until the recent set of regs that gave you 100% clarity on the ability to refinance, in the initial discussions that I was having with family office, potential sources of capital, the deal fell apart when we got to that point. And we had to start thinking through these complicated structures that would crystallize an IRR calculation because I as developer would want to take my money out in month 36 upon completion, but the investor could not, or there wasn't clarity that they could. So I think that the deal structures will play themselves out now that we know clearly that after 24 months, there is no issue on the refinance, because without that, there was just too much uncertainty with regard to the total cost of capital on a transaction that made this less than attractive
3: We think that often you'll see two tier structures for most vehicles where you'll have qualified opportunity zone fund, which will aggregate the capital. And then you'll have a qualified opportunity zone business, which will actually be the real estate. And we might see the developer who doesn't bring in his own personal or their own, her own capital gains that they will come in into that QOB business and get their interest from that. And even on a promoted basis, where if you are an investor with rollover dollars, as, as the rules have clarified, you're not going to be able to get a profits interest or a carried interest and get the benefits of the tax deferral and tax appreciation
0: benefits on the carried interest portion. Can you use some examples with numbers? For instance, after two years, the property stabilized, or after three years, the property stabilized, and you do a refinance, and now there's all this additional capital can that be distributed? How is it distributed? And what's the tax implications on that money?
1: Simple example would be in year four. So before your basis step ups, your interest in your partnership interest as an investor is zero because you put rollover dollars. So any distribution typically would be subject to tax because it would be a distribution and excess of basis. Well, under sort of normal partnership rules, If the partnership were to go out and take a loan for $100, let's say two partners, 50-50, and partner A was allocated $50 of debt basis, that partner can take out $50 without triggering a gain because he has $50 of outside basis now. So that full 50 allocated to that partner could be distributed without triggering tax.
0: Thanks for that explanation on the refinance, Dimitri. I have one other question. The, the property stabilized, it's running, there's income. Is that distributed like in a
1: normal deal? Operating income generally can be distributed like a normal deal to the extent that the partnership has taxable income that it allocates to the partners. Those partners will have basis to take distributions against. The thing that's interesting about real estate is real estate tends to run at a tax loss, which means that if there's operating cash available to distribute, there may not be basis and you could have triggering of gain on distributions. And on those distributions,
0: would those be taxed as gain or would those be taxed as distributions would be in a normal real estate transaction? There are two types of
3: structures that we're often seeing here. One is a partnership, which is a flow-through concept, which is Dimitri is talking about. But then we also have REITs. And that REITs, uh, if you put a REIT structure in place, The distributions that you're going to pay out, since you're required to pay out distributions equal to 90% of taxable income in order to qualify as a REIT, they would come up as your typical dividend income that you would get out of a public REIT type scenario. Depending on the sophistication of the investor, we see some folks setting up structures, and particularly the more sophisticated family offices and high net worth individuals, and they want to have a partnership and have the flow-through benefits that Dimitri spoke about. And then there are others who only want to get a 1099 and prefer the REIT structure so they get simplicity with their tax returns. They don't have to file in every state If you've got a partnership, you're going to, wherever the properties are, you're going to have to file in that state. If you get a REIT and you get a 1099, all you need to do is pick that up as dividend income. So I think those are some of the reasons why you're going to see um, the more sophisticated folks go through the process of setting up partnerships. And those that are aggregators that have a a more retail-based investor group that are a little bit less sophisticated, they might prefer um, getting a REIT and getting it just like getting a 1099.
1: But Bill, going back just to operating income and distributions. I think the catch here is the investors will have zero basis in whatever entity they invest, which is not typical because usually I put cash in an entity and I get basis. And so distributions from operations, although typically should not be subject to tax under the rules, we're going to have to monitor them because depending on where we are with our basis calculations at the investor level, we could trigger tax on distributions. In a partnership structure. In a partnership structure. It's technical.
0: It's very, very technical. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that, you know, where there are questions and answers, sometimes there are even more questions. And that's extremely important to consult with their professionals when they're structuring things like this so that they're getting the best benefit at the end of the day when they're on the other side of the fence. It
3: is really important to have good tax advice, good legal advice in setting up these structures because in the early years, the complicated rules haven't been fully vetted. I think over a period of time, we'll get guidance from the IRS, continued guidance from Treasury, and it'll become a little bit easier. But particularly for the next few years, I think talking to your attorney and talking to your tax advisor is really
1: important. And and we're, we're coordinating with the law firms in a way that I haven't done before in my career because everything is new. There's a lot of coordination that has to go on to make sure that we don't miss certain hurdles or dates or filings. uh, And it's really a combination of your attorneys and your accountants. Uh, Just this morning, I was on a call setting up a fund and we had a long, long checklist. And we're saying, okay, who's going to do what? Because it's very easy to miss something and then lose the benefit.
0: This also adds to the cost because you need more consultants to make sure you don't make any mistakes. I'm going to age
3: myself here, but we had a similar situation in the second coming of real estate investment trusts, where there were lots of new rules with lots of tests. And in the early days, they required a lot of handholding to make sure you didn't do something that caused your structure to blow up. And therefore, your whole entity becomes taxable. I think the same exists here. And I think now you looked at you know, the second coming of REITs were back in the uh, early 90s. I would tell you that now most com- people feel very comfortable using a REIT structure. I think the same thing will occur over a period of time as the QOZ structure is time-tested. So after a while,
0: there'll be a template that can be used over and over again. Agreed. Quick little break here Realty Speak fans. We cover so many topics on the show, and with almost 20 episodes, there's plenty of great information and strategies that you can use. But sometimes you may need more than that. Therefore, I'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling your valuable apartment building real estate. Every transaction is different, and so are the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on the execution, proper planning. With decades in the industry, in the areas of brokerage, construction, debt capital, and appraisal, I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio, or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed-use real estate. Call me. It's just that easy to get the information you need to know when you need to know it. Now, the number, it's 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Dimitri, often I'm asked, what about depreciation recapture in terms of the qualified opportunity zones? as opposed to depreciation recapture in a typical 1031-like kind exchange?
1: We get that question quite a bit. And just to level set, the, the idea is that generally when an asset or a building is depreciated on the sale of that building, there's what's called depreciation recapture, which is gain to the extent of the depreciation taken. In the QOZ world, if the QOF sells its asset and that gain has depreciation that is capital gain in nature, then that depreciation recapture is eligible for the 10 year exclusion, meaning that the investor will not pay tax on that depreciation recapture. So that's another
0: benefit of the qualified opportunity zone. It, it is another benefit.
2: Yeah. I think it would be interesting if you could walk through, um, you know, Demish or Phil, the. How you th- see things playing out in a multi-asset qualified opportunity zone fund, certainly until the recent set of regs, the market thought that things were going to go in the direction of individual transactions, which we were calling qualified opportunities funds, but that was really a little bit of a misnomer. It was a single asset structure. Now there's a whole bunch of benefits, both from the manager, fund manager's perspective, from the investor's perspective, in terms of the pool vehicle. How do you see that playing out in terms of capital flows?
3: I think the treasury specifically saying that they expect recycling of capital and they expect multi-asset funds has been helpful. I think that there are some complexities in the sale of those assets, uh, but they have made it a little bit easier if you sell after 10 years, and I'll let Dimitri walk you through the tax specifics of that, but I think those are the the two things. And the third thing we mentioned already is the ability to do refinancing proceeds. I think that really does help the ability to do multi-asset vehicles.
1: Prior to the new proposed regs, we were structuring multi-asset funds, but because of the quirk in the rules where the only exit we thought that was 100% guaranteed that you were going to get the benefit was the sale of the qualified opportunity fund interest. We couldn't do a multi-asset fund in the traditional way because in a multi-asset fund, you generally have the fund selling its assets and flowing that gain up to its investors. So what we had to do was a contractual multi-asset fund. Instead of one vehicle, every qualified opportunity zone investment would be in its own qualified opportunity fund so that the fund could sell off each qualified opportunity fund. So it was really a fund only in sort of a contractual sense. There wasn't just one aggregator vehicle. There could be, you know, 10, if you had 10 deals, you'd have 10 qualified opportunity funds together labeled as the fund. The new set of regs gave us some really favorable guidance. It allows a qualified opportunity fund to sell its asset. And on that sale, The capital gain that flows up to the investor can be excluded by that investor if it's 10 years after they entered the Qualified Opportunity Fund. So that allows for a traditional fund aggregator vehicle and dispositions of the underlying assets. There's quirks in there, however. Quirk in the reg, the new proposed regs, uh, can be relied upon for every provision except the 10-year exit. And I think this is really just not good planning by Treasury. Their thought was, "Eh, 10 years from now, we'll deal with it in the final regs. So they didn't allow you to rely on that provision. Uh, But of course, people are setting up their funds now for 10 years from now. There's still some structuring that we have to do around that. People are relying on it, but coming up with alternative plans just in case those rules get finalized in a different form.
3: What I can tell you is I just read Real Estate Alert. In early May, they put out a listing of what they're calling commingled funds. And and since these are private vehicles, there isn't one website to go to, to get the answer, but Real Estate Alert did survey and found there are 51 commingled vehicles out there that have announced up to $20 billion of capital raise. Again, it's it's announced, so it's not guaranteed, but I would imagine that many of those will be successful, and $20 billion is a good start for any program that is focusing on low and moderate income housing,
0: can we say some of the larger players uh, that are creating funds in terms of investment houses, owner operators that have institutional funds? Who are some of those? Some some of the majors obviously include Toby, of course, but we have
3: folks like Bridge, uh, CIM, Cantor Fitzgerald, R X R. Somerset, Brookfield. Uh, There are some folks that are also doing impact funds that are probably going to utilize the QOZ benefits as part of one of the tools in their toolbox for impact funds. The list is pretty extensive. Obviously, you've heard a lot about SkyBridge, EJF, Westport. Those are the kinds of uh, folks that are actively pursuing this QOZ initiative.
0: If somebody wants to invest in this and be a limited partner, do they go straight to the fund? Can they acquire this through their UBS or their Merrill Lynch or their Goldman Sachs? There, there are
3: three programs. First, like what Toby is doing is that she's going out and finding the deals and then going out and finding the investors. Then we have... F- individuals, or organizations that I call the aggregators, and that's the wealth managers of the world that are going to go out and accumulate capital and then go find the developers to put those capital out for them on specific deals throughout the United States. And then the third are the bigger houses that are going to try and do both themselves. I think each of those will occur Our original view was that there will probably be 75% of the deals done around QOZ real estate would be single asset type deals. And then 25%, which will be a very large number, that will be done through these commingled funds. That's my personal opinion when we started to think about that. We'll see how it plays out. The other thing I just want to be clear on is that real estate is just the tip of the spear here. You know, real estate uh, did a lot of understanding and helped mold the rules when treasury was going through the first and second set. But the real opportunity are businesses. And I don't think we even started to scratch the surface because just like a real estate deal can get those three benefits, a business that forms in a qualified zone can get all those same benefits if they hold the business for 10 years and then ultimately dispose of it. And I think, you know, our real estate clients are going to be marketing to the businesses that can take advantage of these things.
0: Toby, with that said, I mean, how do you see this in terms of not just the real estate, but also the businesses?
2: So I think there's an interesting way in which this all converges specifically around commercial development in emerging areas. And that is the developers of the properties have a double benefit over here. Number one is certainly being able to raise the capital for their um, individual commercial developments, but knowing that there's potentially a deep bench of tenancy from companies that want to be in these areas because of the benefit to their business. And that includes venture-backed companies. I mean, if you're looking at raising significant monies, and then the idea of going into a startup company where you would have a very low basis as a founder and also potentially as an investor, I think there's a huge impact. Um, But I'd also go back to Phil's comment about impact investing, because ultimately the source of all of this was thinking about bringing capital into low-income areas around the country. I think that there's a lot of focus around that right now on real estate, but we're just beginning to see the implications of operating companies moving into neighborhoods that maybe haven't seen this kind of economic development and investors that are going to specifically want to be deploying capital, whether it be in real estate transactions or businesses that are hiring locally, bringing money into local communities and giving job opportunities to young people in these neighborhoods who maybe couldn't in the past access that kind of economic mobility. So I think impact investing in family offices, specifically focused on the economic impact in low-income areas, it's going to be a lot more gas in the tank of why people pay attention to what opportunity zones are and why they should be putting their money both into real estate transactions and then operating businesses. But tell us a little bit, Phil, I know there was very little clarity on the first round of regs as to where your employees need to be based where your product needs to be created, where your sales need to happen. And I understand that that's all been clarified so that there should be hopefully a gush of money. Some of that $20 billion should be moving into businesses in these Opportunity Zone uh, d- districts.
3: Definitely there's more clarity, but I can't tell you that it's perfectly clear.
2: Well, nobody would have any any need to hire anybody, any accountant or lawyer if it was (laughs) all perfectly clear. We don't expect that to ever happen. In
3: order to qualify as a QOZ business, 70% of your tangible property must be in the QOZ. You must have 50% of your gross income from within the QOZ. What the new regs did is gave a couple of safe harbors that help with that definition. If 50% of the services based upon hours are performed in the QSE, you're going to meet the requirement. If 50% of the amounts paid to employees are independent contractors, the gig economy is all about using, um, you know, a self-employed folks, independent contractors, then you can qualify. If both your tangible property and management and operational functions of them are in the QOZ, you're going to meet the safe harbor. There are some other things, particularly around intangible properties. If you're a technology business, 40% of your intangible property uh, must be using the trade or business that's in the QOZ. Now, there is one that's designed to avoid financial companies taking advantage of this hedge fund setting up in the QOZ is that you can't have more than 5% of your business property being non-qualifying financial property. So investments, stocks, bonds, things of that nature are not going to be, you're not going to be able to set up a holding business in the zone and then be able to run a financial business outside of it. That's not what they're looking for. And then, then there's also this definition of sin business. You can't be a sin business. And this is based on an old definition of what sin businesses are. So Things like massage parlors, uh, suntan facilities, racetracks, gambling, things that require a liquor off-site consumption. So you can have a restaurant, but you can't have a liquor store. Uh, what they're what they're trying to avoid is the, so- the negative social impact of those things coming into the zone. They didn't want that to occur.
2: I'll add one more point, which we didn't really touch on. So on a 1031, it's sort of hit play and go. And there's not much you need to do until you transact a second time. Clearly, with the self-certification component on an opportunity zone, real estate transaction, and a business, there are more reporting requirements. You want to sort of walk us through why we need KPMG at the table more than a 1031 and, you know, your view both from a reporting perspective, what is clear that's needed and how this might impact things moving forward in terms of the industry, you know, we have the hedge fund industry had all these administration companies. I'm getting a lot of calls from vendors trying to sell us services in and around the reporting requirements.
1: You're right. When you do a 1031, when you finish your like-kind exchange and buy your replacement property, it's just a normal property, and you keep on functioning as you were. With the QOZ program, there's a lot more testing, cash management that has to occur. It's a lot more like what REITs are, where we have two asset tests, one at the QF level, one at the Qualified Opportunity Zone business level. There's a 90% test and a 70% test. Those are biannual tests. So after six months, you have to look at your assets and make sure that you qualify as a Qualified Opportunity Fund, meaning 90% of your property is in the zone, uh, and you have to do the same thing at the QOZB level, where there is 70% of your tangible property is in the zone. So you need testing every six months biannually. The other piece of it is, there is although self-certification is easy, it's designed to be easy, there's two forms that need to be filed. One at the partnership level or at the QOF level, it can be a Corp. 2, uh, and that is the Form 8996. And on that form, which the entity files with with its return, it's the self-certification saying the the entity qualifies to be a qualified opportunity fund. The investor also has some responsibilities, the one that's rolling over the its capital gain dollars on its form 8949. The investor's going to identify the capital gains that the investor is rolling over. So beyond just your normal structuring, which is more complicated with the QOZs, you have these forms. On the structuring side, There's also the idea of managing for the tests and cash is not a good asset. So you're going to have to manage your cash, which is why we see these two tier structures because at the QOF level, it's a 90% asset test and cash is not a good asset. So the way that people are managing cash is their QOF is contributing that cash into a qualified opportunity zone business, which is just a lower tier subsidiary. And at that level, there's a working capital safe harbor that can be used to make that cash a good asset for a 31 month period.
2: Could you talk for a minute about the working capital safe harbor, specifically for a developer like myself that often finds themselves with very heavily regulatory environment like New York? You know, Dallas, Texas, I'm sure, they're breaking ground within 30 days of closing. But we have a pretty extensive pre-development effort. Do I need to buy sites that are only shovel ready? What is considered A good use of capital during a pre development period at a transaction level. If I'm still waiting on full approvals, but I'm working on things, even site prep, demolition, uh, excavation, et cetera.
3: The number one thing that came out of the new regs is that if you're held up and can't meet the 31 month requirement because of a government agency delay, that doesn't cause you to fail your QOZ test. So they're going to give us flexibility. So you know how zoning is in the New York metro area. It could take years to get something zoned, or you might be waiting for a permit or approval from a government agency that elongates that 31 months. The key really is all about, do you have a plan? Are you actively pursuing that plan? And is the holdup uh, caused by one of those governmental bodies or agencies that forces you not to be able to complete the the development and spend the money within the 31 months.
2: Does a 31 month requirement mean that you're demonstrating the money's been spent or do you have to hit some threshold like a certificate of occupancy or cash flow coming off the property?
3: It's much more about hitting the substantial improvement. If you need to hit the substantial improvement requirement, you have 31 months to complete that. What they don't want you to do is do something that looks and smells like land banking, that you're really not actively pursuing your development plan. So you've got to have that written plan. It's got to be achievable in 31 months in order to be able to hit the substantial investment. But it could take longer, governmental delays, or just that it's a large site and it takes longer than doing that. As long as you've spent the money and created the jobs in the construction process, I think the government is going to give you some flexibility. You know What we've seen over our careers is that regs that come out are usually, when they go from temporary to final, actually get more favorable. They don't usually go backwards. So we're hopeful that if you follow what the intention was, which is to create those uh, jobs and to make that investment, that you'll the government will not penalize
0: you for doing the right thing. If at some point when you're doing these six-month tests, you don't Pass one of the tests, you don't lose the whole program. You, you just become penalized for that one thing, and then you have an opportunity to correct. They will explain the penalties for non compliance. They haven't come out with those.
3: But one of the things they did say in the most current regs one of the concerns was sh- you raise capital and can't deploy it very quickly. Well, they've given us now a six-month period if you take in capital that that capital that came in in the last six months doesn't go to the first test. Let's say you brought it in one week before your your first testing, you would fail because you hadn't invested it. They're saying, no, no, we're going to give you the flexibility over a six-month period for those capital calls not to qualify for that purpose of the test. But they haven't yet set definitive penalties for failure to comply, except in one scenario.
1: If you, if you don't meet, the, let's say, the 90% test, let's say only 80% of your assets are in the zone, that 10% difference will be subject to a penalty. And the way that they're going to calculate it is they're going to look at your deferred tax and hit you with an underpayment penalty for that 10% of that deferred tax.
0: So it's important to manage this and keep good records.
1: You have to manage it. What we're suggesting to our clients is in anticipation of each test, a month earlier, we test your assets to make sure that you're going to qualify when we actually do the testing that goes in the books. So almost like a pretest. because that will give clients a, a month to adjust if they have too much cash on the books.
3: One of the other things that you, Toby had mentioned, measurement of the impact on these opportunity zones. Recently, Senators Booker and Scott introduced legislation That they originally had in the plan before it went into a law, which is to create a report card for the kinds of things that are going to happen in these zones. So the proposal would, would provide Treasury with the following information, probably as part of the forms that you're going to file to show that you've taken in qualified opportunities on money. The number of funds that have been formed, the amount of assets held in the fund, the composition of the funds by asset class, the percentage designated to receive investments in each of these cl- each of these vehicles. And what they were hoping to do is to be able to provide statistics back to the individuals in the legislature to show that this program is working. So they're going to hopefully be able to provide a total amount invested in, in OZ funds in each of the census tracts, the type of investment, such as a new business, additional investment in an existing business or a real estate development, uh, the location the types of real estate development that is occurring. Is it single family homes, multifamily homes, commercial real estate, manufacturing, retail? And then when you go to the businesses, what are the sectors that are taking advantage of this? They're going to give some information on the number of full-time employees, maybe from where you started to where it's grown to over a period of time, and the amount of square footage or other economic information that can show the size of these programs. Uh, I think that's really important. I know Toby, when she's working on development, she's always looking at them to say, what does the community need? And I think that's really important that we can show where we had success, what the communities are getting in order to make sure this program stays alive. You know, I've been spending time with businesses that are, I think, very good for the zones, like trying to bring fresh food to the zones. I'm spending a lot of time with supermarkets and thinking about how they might be able to take advantage of it. I've spent some time with medical professionals who want to open up urgent care facilities. We've been talking to state universities. We've been talking to government and how they can help really drive the success of these programs in certain areas with thematic investing some places are looking to create affordable housing. Others are trying to bring businesses to their blighted downtowns. Others are trying to create incubators, whether it be for high tech, whether it be for a biotech, whether it be for trying to take advantage of one of the areas that has a particular niche, whether that be technology or to try and take advantage of some former military facilities or bring student housing and drive R&D around those, those universities. All of these thematic approaches, I really hope that we're able to capture that information and show the economic impact as well as the social impact to these zones over a period of time.
1: It's funny that we're sitting here on Park Avenue discussing this, because ultimately-
2: Hold on. I work in Williamsburg, so I'm just visiting.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. But but when we look at the success of the program, if you think about it, it was designed to create jobs. The gateway cities weren't necessarily what was in mind when they created the program, right? You Think Tim, Tim Scott, South Carolina. What is this going to do for the southeastern rural United States or the Rust Belt in terms of manufacturing, supermarkets, Phil was talking about, in communities that have food deserts. What we've seen in terms of our clients, a lot of them are national focused and the governments are really stepping up to provide incentives for these businesses to go into those areas. And one of the places we see it on the tax side is state benefits, because one of the benefits that we don't necessarily talk about in the forefront is the state benefits. Many of the states are conforming meaning that they are going to provide similar benefits to the QOZ programs for investments in those states.
2: Is New York going to be doing that?
1: New York is conforming. Yeah, that's great. We're also seeing the states compete and roll out investment credits that can be paired with the QOZ programs to entice businesses to come into their states and into particular areas or zones in those states. So it's really a dynamic area where the states are competing for those dollars
3: and even those states that aren't conforming they are looking at if they have a thematic approach they want to drive affordable housing they want to create these incubators they will offer those incentives specifically if you do this in those zones Even though they're not fully conforming, they're trying to incentivize what they think will make a difference in their state. And every state has different objectives and goals. And that's why the governor selected specific parcels to drive opportunity. We can talk about New York City. One of the things there's been some press around is that 50th Street to 58th Street between 10th and 12th Avenue is a zone. This is Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan. The reason why that particular parcel was selected and what they want to have happen is they want to help the ports. And that zone is they're going to target bringing in companies that can make a difference in driving job growth around the port system in New York City. It's not necessarily about building condominiums. They want something specific there. And I think you'll find that around the country in different places. If you go look at New Jersey, you'll you'll see a lot of sites that are on the waterfront. They want to drive the ports.
2: You make an interesting point about whether the intention in the gateway cities was to drive the development that might have been happening regardless. And I think Mott Haven in the Bronx is a really good example of good development. New York, in addition to the general desire to drive economic growth, bring jobs into the communities, we continue to have a severe housing crisis. And the fact that the Mont Haven, we'll call it neighborhood, was a designated opportunity zone was certainly a critical driver in Brookfield stepping up to the plate. Um, Lightstone's made their purchase. I have a number of sites. There are other developers locally, and I think without the tax benefit of opportunity zones, this might have taken 20 years. And instead, we will see an entire neighborhood brought online over the next five to seven years with tens of thousands of apartments. So that's on the residential side. Uh, Certainly that'll play out in other gateway cities. And I do agree both with Dimitri and Phil. I think that the the focus on thematic, we'll call it commercial activity, which is bringing businesses and jobs. We're only seeing the beginning of that. And that does have an ability to impact even in cities like New York, B- Brooklyn, Bronx, and the Queens, Staten Island, bringing businesses that might have chosen to stay in core Manhattan or other non-opportunity zone areas, and you'll see the same, whether it's in Los Angeles, uh, Miami, even Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, businesses choosing to place themselves in an area where economically disadvantaged communities have access to those jobs. You know, to the extent that the states and city government is smart about both aligning their incentives, but also very aggressively recruiting companies. I think you, you can see hopefully enough impact as monitored both at the governmental level. And then there are a number of nonprofits and Georgetown has the Beak Center. Um, they're also putting out research. This should be, I believe, policy that continues beyond 2046. It, it does do what we think it can do, both in terms of driving housing to much-needed parts of this country, but even more importantly, bringing jobs into the communities that maybe wouldn't have seen them without this kind of tax incentive.
3: This program was designed to create neighborhoods. And you create neighborhoods one block at a time. Each of the governors selected where they thought investment could occur in the near term to create workforce housing and then allow for an affordable component. And they went after the census tracts that were most likely to be invested. And as you said, to speed the investment because that would accelerate the impact to these neighborhoods and to create the jobs and the investment that they wanted to occur. And this program is very different than many other government programs. Government usually incentivizes development through tax incentives and debt. This is the first time that they're trying to incentivize equity investment, and they're doing it in the right way because the real estate deal needs to make sense. It needs to make money. If it doesn't make money, people aren't going to invest in it. So you're not having a tax shelter where somebody is getting a pure tax benefit for just trying to do something that may not be economic. These are going to the best Uh, zones. uh, The lowest lying fruit are the ones that are going to get the first investment. And then what will happen over a period of time, it'll make its way block by block throughout those census tracks to make a difference. And that's why Mott Haven, uh, Sunset Park, uh, getting capital allocated to it because they have begun that change process. And People want to be there. You're going to create the jobs. You're going to create the housing. You're going to continue to enhance the neighborhoods over the near term. And you're right. I 100% ag- agree that if we are successful, this program should be extended well beyond 2047. And by the way, we only selected 25% of the low-income census tracts. We're going to have a new census shortly. And if this is successful, why not expand it to others?
1: And I think the genius is really the diversity in the stakeholders, because to transform mothaven Haven, it's not just that you're going to go build a building residential, you need businesses, and you have stakeholders in both. The businesses there can take advantage of the opportunity, the developers can take advantage of the opportunity. It's really hitting all the stakeholders that need to make a community change.
3: We need the local residents to participate. What would be really upsetting is if the local people didn't get involved and open up the restaurant, go out and start a business, stay in their communities to to drive this change. We all recognize that you're not going to get 100% participation and there will likely be people who we left behind because they don't want to see this change. But I really think it does have the ability to create an environment that should incubate growth jobs at all different levels, from the guy who's going to make uh, you deliver your pizza, to the guy who's going to own the pizzeria, to the the plumbing company, to the restaurant, to the supermarket, to the doctor who says, hey, I want to open up a facility here. I want to make a difference to this community.
1: And the the rules allow for a a low... Low barrier to entry because you can lease property in the zone, buy your computer that you need to run your business or buy your equipment to run your restaurant, and that all qualifies as original use and allows you to take advantage of the program. And you can also move a business. If you have a
3: pre-existing business, you can take that, your current business, and move into the zone and get these benefits. Again, you still need to have some rollover capital gains to be invested because that's what's going to get attract the tax benefits. But if you wanted to do improvements or you want to buy new equipment or you want to add more people, those are the kinds of things that you can do in the zone.
2: Talk to us, Phil and Dimitri, a little bit about your view on the clarity of the regs around how promoted interests are going to be dealt with and what you think happens in terms of that impacting ultimate deal structure as relates to the tax benefit and qualified opportunities on investing
3: uh, the new regs have come out and said that you cannot get the benefits the tax benefits on on capital gains that are associated with profits interest for services So a developer who puts rollover dollars in, let's say, 100 and then they provide services to the vehicle, and they end up getting more than the $100 share of the profits, they're saying that incremental piece won't qualify. I think there's still some flexibility here, and there's still some evaluation that needs to come through the final regs and the conversations with treasury, one of the things we're doing, we're suggesting that developers in a two-tier structure would come in with their rollover dollars in the same vehicle as everybody else coming in the rollover dollars and then take their profits interest through another vehicle. So that gives them some flexibility to figure out how they might be able to take advantage of the rules as they evolve over a period of time. It is very clear that the developer, if they take rollover dollars and invest it, and they get this, you know, if it's a hundred dollars of a thousand, they're getting they own ten percent of the fund. They're going to get the same benefits as the other investors that come in with nine hundred dollars into the QOF uh, with rollover dollars. With the profits interest coming through another vehicle, we can see how we might be able to help them as the rules start um, become clarified. But right now, if the profits interest is for services, you're
0: not going to qualify. Toby, so, what's your vision for some of the sites that you're looking at in Mott Haven?
2: These are primarily ground up construction, residential development, multifamily, about fifty to one hundred and fifty million dollars of total capital required. I'm working with some individual family offices and others with capital gains. been speaking with KPMG about advising us on these transactions. A lot more moving parts both on the operating agreements, the deal structuring, the waterfalls, promote. That is a consideration on how developers promote is handled. If they put in capital, if they don't put in capital, I think it's a great moment for us. I've taken a lot of risk as the first or second developer in neighborhoods. It actually is a risk mitigant that I am in an opportunity zone, even if my own deal ended up using non Opportunities on uh, capital or capital gains because everyone around me is is moving, moving as well. I think it's it's a great moment for New York. A lot of money is going to flow into these neighborhoods, and tremendous potential impact around the country, in certainly the gateway cities, but also deeper in our communities or even rural areas, which will be a function of the extent to which city and state government can really get the attention of investors and have them deploy capital with the focus on on areas that are maybe not today as obvious.
0: And how does the affordable housing component play into this for you?
2: The city of New York transformed the entire 421A program, and also they created something called mandatory inclusionary housing. So th- that means today, in order to get these benefits, you need to have a 30% lower middle income component. Mont Haven has an additional benefit A lot of it is in areas that are former brownfield sites. So there's an additional up to 15% tax benefit to developing in these areas. So New York, you know, I'm the daughter of an immigrant. My dad came to this country at the age of three. I believe in giving everyone economic opportunity, but also making sure that there's housing for everybody as they move up and down the economic spectrum. And there's been a lot of luxury condo development happening in the city. We simply need more workforce housing in every borough giving an opportunity for people to stay here and participate in the economic transformation that we're going to continue to see over the next decade.
0: Toby, Dimitri, Phil, that was exceptional. Opportunity abound. How will our listeners reach out to you if they have additional questions? Toby?
2: Toby Moskowitz with an S on LinkedIn. I respond to every message, so feel free to find me. Be in touch.
1: D. Yatrakis at KPMG, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Same here. P. Mara P-M-A-R-R-A at KPMG.com or through
3: LinkedIn. And on my LinkedIn uh, site, you'll find lots of information. Uh, We've done a number of of thought leadership pieces around qualified opportunity zones, those that are very technical in nature that really go through the tax rules, as well as those that are business in nature. And we're starting to do some things that are um, focused on individual niches, like some of the things that we're seeing in green energy. You'll see some things that are going to be focused on businesses, affordable housing, things of that nature. And of course, social impact. We are all about making sure that these programs are utilized for what their benefits were designed for, which was to help improve these low and moderate income areas.
0: And Realty Speak listeners, I will be putting all that in the show notes. So you'll have their emails, a link to their LinkedIn, and you'll be able to reach out if you have any additional questions. Thank you all for sharing your knowledge and experience. Dimitri, Phil, fantastic. Thank you. And Toby, thank you so much for your questions from a experienced developer's perspective. I think that was really, really helpful, and I think a listener is going to get a lot out of that.
2: Thank you, Bill. That was a very productive hour spent with some of the leading minds here in Opportunity Zone regulation, and uh, happy to have been a part of that.
1: Thanks, Bill. I had a lot of fun. Toby, it was great being on a panel with you.
3: Bill, thanks for moderating this. Toby, thanks for your time and efforts here. It was great.
0: Realty Speak listeners, there you have it. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform, And of course, you can always get to me via the website at billweidner.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.